Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. This week, the gang talks about the doctrine and history of the Lord's Supper. Let's listen in as Todd, Amy, and Carl discuss Christ's presence in this sacrament and see how partaking in communion enriches and nourishes us spiritually. Keep listening at the end of the podcast to find out how to download a free MP3 from the Alliance. So Carl and Amy, as you know, I'm a pastor in the PCA. I'm an influential man, a man of great influence. When I speak, people tend to listen, just like you all are right now. You're listening Sorry, to Sorry, Todd, did you say yeah. something? Mm-hmm. And as, uh, as a pastor of PCA Church, um, we, of course, do what Christian churches are supposed to do. We uh, have the Lord's Supper. And as a PCA Church, you know, we're cutting edge. We've just added a salad bar. Uh, to the Lord's Supper. It's complete with um, shredded romaine and that chocolate pudding stuff with cookies and cream and macaroni salad, that sort of thing. But we did want to just kind of pick each other's brains on this whole subject of uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, some of us, in fact, I think all three of us were raised uh, Baptist and we became Presbyterian and there's some difference in uh, approaches there, maybe some difference in practice, certainly some difference in theology of, of the Lord's Supper. But we want to kind of talk a little bit about... Um, uh, the doctrine behind the Lord's Supper from a from a Reformed standpoint. Um, and probably the best place to start would be just a little bit of, of history, um, because in the early days of the Protestant Reformation, there was some division over the meaning of the Lord's Supper, Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper, you know, how is it a means of grace, how is grace conferred, that sort of thing. And it led to some pretty deep uh, divisions. Isn't that right, Carl? Yes. One of the things to remember, of course, is that I think I'm right in saying there was more ink spilled over the Lord's Supper in the Reformation than there was over justification by grace through faith. Hmm. Because, of course, the medieval church exerted its authority really through the sacraments. Medieval Catholicism is a sacramental institution, like modern day, uh, the modern day hmm. Catholic Church. It was a sacramental institution. And the Lord's Supper, the Mass, was right at the very heart of medieval piety. If you go into a medieval cathedral in Europe, your eyes are immediately drawn to the altar because the cathedral was designed to focus your attention on the most important thing that happened there, which was the Mass. And to cut a long story short, essentially in the Mass, it was thought that the bread and the wine become the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a sense in which it is offered back to God, either as a some people argue as a, as a new sacrifice of Christ, perhaps more technically correct would be to say a, a, a further application of the one sacrifice of Christ. But certainly salvation in medieval Catholicism was focused on the Mass, the reception of the Mass. In the Reformation, of course, reacting against medieval understandings of authority, inevitably the Reformers reacted against medieval understanding of the sacraments. And by and large, there are three basic positions that emerge in Protestantism in the Reformation. Uh, there's the Lutheran position, in which both bread and wine and the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ are, are, are there in the elements. There's the Zwinglian position, which sees the bread and wine as purely symbolic. And there is the Calvinist position, which sees uh, the bread and wine as as pointing us 
uh, and connecting us via the Holy Spirit to Christ as he is in heaven. So those would be the three positions. And the big break in Protestantism occurs in 1529 when Luther and Zwingli meet together the Marburg Castle uh, in Germany, the Marburg Colloquy, and fail to agree on the reality of the presence of Christ's humanity in the elements. Mm-hmm. Would you say that that the issue of the Lord's Supper and the presence of Christ um, would have been the the major reason why Lutherans and Calvinists kind of went different ways. Yes, the, the the presence of the humanity of Christ in the bread and the wine is absolutely vital for Luther because for Luther, where Christ's humanity is not present, there there is no gospel. So if you take the humanity of Christ out of the elements, you really turn the Lord's Supper, which was meant to be a gospel ordinance, into a law, into something that that we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas uh, for the Calvinists, they don't want to go with the Zwinglians. They don't want to make right. the Lord's Supper purely symbolic. They do want to emphasize that there is a, a real feeding upon Christ, but that feeding is a spiritual feeding. If you like, the Holy Spirit obliterates the geographical gap that exists between us and Christ in heaven and enables us to feed on Christ in heaven by faith, mm-hmm. even here and now. So, I mean, one of the things that, and I don't know, Amy, if you had the same experience, but moving from being a Baptist to um, kind of inching my way towards Presbyterian over several years, one of the things that was strange to me was um, the use of the word sacrament when it came to the Lord's Supper and baptism. To me, that was just very Roman Catholic, and and I was very curious and, and for a time troubled by why Presbyterians still employed the word uh, sacrament because that conjured up in my mind's images of uh, Roman Catholic priests lifting up the host above their head and saying hocus corpus meum and and that sort of thing and so it took me a while to understand uh, how Presbyterians used that word uh, sacrament. Yeah, I um, grew up looking at the Lord's Supper more of a, of a remembrance. Right. But um, and then when I would hear the word sacrament, yeah, I identified that so much with the Roman Catholic Church, and um, I was more reactionary against that word, I believe. Right. But as I and I really learned the most about it, I think, from reading Calvin's Institutes. Mm-hmm. Um, his chapter on the Lord's Supper is so good, and and he refers to it as a spiritual banquet, and it's just so rich how he describes you know the true participation in Christ that we have there and how it drives us to the cross and it it lifts us up we're not bringing Christ down by any means from heaven i love how he um kind of he has this analogy of of the sun and as the sun's beams radiate from where it is and and give us warmth and nourishment and growth so too the radiance of Christ's spirit imparts to us the true communion of his flesh and blood. Mm. And so it's such a, a richer understanding yeah. than as I was reading through that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good mention as well. I would encourage people to read um, Calvin on the Lord's Supper. And, it, and, and I would also say that, you know, we have uh, Reformed Baptist brothers and sisters, and by that I mean uh, Baptists who adhere to the London Baptist Confession and that kind of thing, who, whose view of the Lord's Supper is probably much closer to Presbyterians mm-hmm. than it would be to maybe broader Baptistic life like Southern Baptist Convention, where, where you'll find mostly a, a mere remembrance or a Zwinglian view 
Um, but but Reformed Baptists uh, typically will have a view that's much closer to the Presbyterian view. Now they they probably would 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 not want to call it a sacrament. They'd still want to call it an ordinance. But but they have a, so. Um, we, we've mentioned Richard Barcellus's uh, book, uh, which I believe is called "More Than a Memory: Recovering the Lord's Supper as a Means of Grace." I think, it's, and he's a he's a Reformed Baptist. And it's really quite a good book on uh, on the Lord's Supper. So, so there's a lot of um, uh, I think congruence between Presbyterians and Reformed Baptists um, when it comes to uh, theology of the Lord's Supper. So, when we say um, technically. Uh, it, it just means basically kind of sacred mystery, something along those lines. Uh, Truman, is that right? Yeah, an outward sign of a, an invisible grace, yeah. uh, a sign and seal of grace. One of the questions that what often comes across, of course, in Protestant circles when discussing the Lord's Supper is, you know, what difference does it make? Mm-hmm. What do I get in the sacraments? What do I get in the Lord's Supper that I don't get in the word preached? Yeah, And that can sometimes puzzle people. Yeah. My response to that would be, there's a sense in which you don't get anything different in the sacrament mm-hmm. than you get in the preaching of the word. You, you get Christ. Yeah. Uh, you get Christ, though, in a, a different way. And I sometimes use an analogy of, of gifts that we give to loved ones on their birthdays. You, know, you, can tell, you can tell your wife that you love her every day of the year. But if you give her a present on her birthday or on your wedding anniversary, it still means something. Mm-hmm. And you know it means something because if you don't give her a present on her birthday or wedding anniversary and use as your excuse, well, I told you I loved you, isn't that all you need? Mm-hmm. Uh, your wife will indicate to you that, <coughs> no, actually, the present does something. It, mm-hmm. it means something. And I think the Lord's Supper is like that. It doesn't give us a different Christ. It gives us the same Christ in a different way. It presses the same message upon us, but in a different way, and therefore makes the love of Christ, the gospel, the power of Christ, that much more real, if I could put mm-hmm. it that way. Yeah. yeah this and also so- shows that we're partakers in this whole um, life of Christ. It's not just knowledge that we have about him that makes us Christians and receivers of the faith, but that we actually get to partake in Christ. I mean, there's an action going on there that's significant, I think. Speaks yeah. powerfully of our union with Christ. I think. Right, right. And, and so we call it communion for, for, mm-hmm. for very good reason. It's not mm-hmm. only communion uh, with our brothers and sisters because we receive this together, but, but uh, in that deeper sense, it is genuine communion with Christ, not because there is something essentially or fundamentally mysterious about the, the little pieces of bread and, and, the, and the little cup of wine or juice that we take, but because the Lord Jesus has said, I'm giving this to you as a gift. He, he chooses the means, in other words, whereby he communes with us and nourishes us. First and foremost, through his word, but then also through these very simple means of, of bread and, and the cup. Mm-hmm. And, and in that sense, uh, the Lord's Supper is not my, my individual devotional experience, but it is something right. that Christ is doing for us, just as he did for his disciples the night that he was betrayed. And Paul confirms that as he seeks to, to correct and instruct uh, the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11. It's important to stress, I think, though, that the, the Lord's Supper only has significance because it takes place within the context of the word. Yes. Right. So back to my architectural point earlier. Yes, the, the altar is in a place of prominence in a medieval cathedral. In a, a well-designed Protestant church, the table is often underneath the pulpit. Mm-hmm. And that's symbolic that the, the sacrament takes place underneath the proclamation of the word and the reformers to a man were all very clear that there could be no celebration of the lord's supper without 
the word being proclaimed because the significance of the Lord's Supper is the promise laid up in Christ. Right. And that promise needs to be clearly declared in a language that the people can understand mm-hmm. in order for the, the sacrament to have, well, to have any reality. It's not, uh, it doesn't have, it's not what they would have said ex operate operato mm-hmm. in the Middle Ages. It doesn't, you know, operate by itself. Right. It operates as an adjunct of the word. So, Proclamation of the word is important, and that would lead me to, to another point to say that it's important that pastors teach on the Lord's Supper. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly as the Lord's Supper is about to be administered, some kind of table address should be given uh, in which some aspect of the significance of what's going on is declared to the people in order to help people understand that this is important. It's not just something we, we do at the end of a service because we have nothing better to do with our time. Yeah. It has uh, an importance. It's integral in what it means to be a Christian. Yeah, yeah we describe it as, you know, you, you hear the sermon, the primary means by which which is through the word, the primary means by which uh, God produces faith in the heart of the unbeliever and, and sanctifies his people. And then uh, he's gracious enough also to give us these very simple physical things that we're able to taste as, as kind of a visible sermon. And, and it's just one more way to placard uh, the gospel to those who are witnessing this. And then, again, I, I'm, I'm stunned by the fact that every month when we, when we serve the Lord's Supper, it's there, there's a in the back of my mind almost a comical thing because we're we're looking forward to the great wedding feast of the lamb right. and yet we use these right. uh, almost laughable uh, symbols of a meal this tiny little tasteless uh, square of unleavened bread and this tiny little thimble of juice and yet it's a reminder that that the treasure of the gospel is housed in jars of clay. Yeah, and God's pro- you know promises verses. that the reality of the new creation is ratified in this mm-hmm. meal. So, mm-hmm. like because of Christ's body and blood, there's going to come that day when we are actually invited to the great feast, right. where Christ is the host, not the right. meal. Right. And right. I mean, so there is this eschatological mm-hmm. meal happening there too. I think with the future. Yeah, yeah, we're pointing. Yeah, in. exactly. We're we're pointing people back to the cross, but we're also pointing them forward. Right. To that great, great banquet that is to come. And so it's highly significant, um, as you say, eschatologically as, as, as well. And I'm reminded of the fact, once again, that, you know, in, it's a powerful thing each week when you walk into a, Carl, you mentioned our architecture earlier. It's a powerful thing when you walk into a Protestant, uh, sanctuary and see, uh, not an altar, but a table. Uh, we don't have a place to offer a sacrifice, but we have a table where Christ invites us mm. uh, to fellowship. And that fellowship is real, that mm-hmm. he has chosen these simple means to actually fellowship with us. Not not just a mere memorial, but he fellowships with us in some uh, mysterious way. And we say that as convinced Presbyterians who are not charismatic. We, don't, uh, we, we aren't much into mysticism, but there is a mystery to the Lord's Supper whereby Christ is present in a spiritual way, nourishing us. And that's that correspondence mm-hmm. between the sign and the thing that it symbolizes. And that leads me actually to recommend one more book, and that is yeah. Robert Bruce's The Mystery of the Lord's Supper. Mm. Robert Bruce was a early Scottish Presbyterian reformer in a series of sermons that he preached on the Lord's Supper. I think they're available from Christian Focus Publications. Uh, some of the best things ever written about the Lord's Supper. So Robert Bruce, The Mystery of the Lord's Supper is well worth consulting.
Good, good. So, yeah. Well, as uh, we wrap up today, I want to do something slightly unusual. Um, I have a student called Richie whose father actually named him after the great Richie Blackmore, the legendary lead guitarist of Deep Purple and then Rainbow. And I'm going to ask... Uh, Aaron and the Mad Woman, if they can arrange for this particular episode to be played out to the classic guitar riff from Deep Purple, A Smoke on the Water. So as you're listening to this classic rock, we bid you farewell. We trust that the podcast has been helpful to you, that the rock music at the end is inspiring. Uh, Please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, and we look forward to joining with you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, Bully Pulpit, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold the historical creeds and confessions of the Reformed faith and who proclaim biblical doctrine in order to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. In light of the unity the Lord's Supper gives us with each other and with Christ, we'd like to give you another free message. Make sure to visit our website, mortificationofspin.org to download Justification in Union with Christ, a message by Ligon Duncan. And join us next week when the gang sits down with friend and fellow pastor Max Benford to talk about the visible and invisible church. I didn't have a category for apostasy, someone who could be a member of the visible covenant community of God's people and yet not be as Paul might say, you know, true Israel or, or whatever. But it was the Reformed faith, particularly this this distinction of visible and invisible church that finally gave the categories that help us understand what's being described in Hebrews. It also helped me understand infant baptism a little bit better and the importance of it. Yeah, God's sovereignty and election, when I really came to understand that, it emboldened my witness because it's sort of the same thing that people will say about prayer as well, that if God is sovereign, why pray? But my answer to that is if God isn't sovereign, why pray? Come back to hear more next time. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to visit mortificationofspin.org to see and hear more from Amy, Carl, and Todd and to download Justification in Union with Christ. I mean, it what is the boy. What yeah. boy has not, at some point when he was a kid, learned yeah. that riff on a guitar? If nothing else, <laughs> I love out a way uh, to pluck that out. If you look at Richie Blackmore's Wikipedia article, he lists his hobbies as drinking and watching German language television. <laughs> Very interesting. <laughs> it's awesome. He sounds like a complete layerback. German language television. Yeah, he's hmm. bilingual. He's, he's. I think he married oh. a German lady. I see. But I think he's one this of the. This is the time in Strockets when we dance. <laughs> I think he's one of the great rock guitarists. He's he's he underestimated. Is great. He is great. Touch my monkey. Him. Touch him. Love him. Lieber mein Abschminky. That's the kind of German language television. <laughs> 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 <laughs>